from the Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story. This is a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas, and my name is Mark Fennell. Hi, my name is Yeonmi Park. Uh, I'm a North Korean defector. My dream was very simple. I wanted to just have uh, one bucket of bread because I was really always hungry. Born in North Korea in 1993, Yeonmi Park grew up in a society devoted to the worship of dear leader Kim Jong-il. As a child, she regularly came across dead bodies on the street and spent months at a time without electricity. And people she knew were executed simply for watching American movies. In 2007, Yeonmi and her mother escaped into China but were captured and sold to human traffickers. Two years later, they reached the Mongolian border and eventually arrived in South Korea. Yeonmi, firstly, welcome to the show and thank you so much for sharing your story with us. You've described North Korea as the darkest place on earth, but as a child, you wouldn't necessarily have known or at least had context for what the rest of the world would have looked like. So for people that, I guess, don't know what North Korea is like, can you introduce it to us? Uh, In North Korea, that I never knew that I could have a choice to choose anything for myself. I never had the freedom to choose what to wear even, even what kind of songs to listen, what kind of movie to watch, not even mention what I'm going to be in the future. The Everything is determined by the government. And I think that's the place I grew up. But still, like, as you said, I did not know that I, my country was isolated. I mean, if you know really your country's isolated, you are not really isolated. What did your mum and dad do for work? Uh, my mother was uh, staying at home mm-hmm. and took care of us. But my father was in the party. He was a party member, but still that didn't guarantee his, you know, security in life. I mean, the food, those things were not provided. So he had to engage in the black market business. And what I mean by black market is not what we think of like selling drugs or doing bad things. Initially, he started selling like sugar, rice, clocks, but later he sold the metals and that was illegal in North Korean system. And he was caught eventually, wasn't he? He got caught and he was sent to prison. What happened to you and your mother when he was in prison? We don't have the concept of like lawyers. I was never get to see him or we didn't know when what was his like a court date was. So we all we knew was that he was arrested and we never knew when we were going to see him again. And from there, like our status in the society just has dropped to the bottom. When your father goes to prison, how fast does it happen? Do you have an opportunity to say goodbye? So in North Korea, like things doesn't happen that way. If they he gets arrested, it's up to government to kill him or like torture him. So once he got arrested... Uh, I didn't know even where, where he was or he was alive or not. How old were you at this point? I think I was around eight or nine. How aware were you of the fact that he was gone because he would have been there one minute and gone the next? Did you ask questions about where he was? Mm, no. I grew up in a society where people disappear, people get executed and people sent to prison for a lot of different reasons. So we don't really learn how to question things. Like we don't know what critical thinking is. You've spoken about this before, about how um, 
people in North Korea have two realities. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain to us what you meant by that? I didn't really know how to process this thing, but when I read the book by George Orwell, 1984, right, it talks about double thing. How can you hold two different contradicting thoughts? So that's what you see in front of you and then what you are taught to believe, these two things, these two ways of seeing the world that you hold in your head. It's hard to describe, but let's say that in North Korea, in school, I learned that we lived in the best country in the world. That we had nothing to envy. And I truly was grateful for my dear leader who was protecting us from the Western universe. And I was truly grateful that I was North Korean. But at the same time, I saw the misery. My grandmother, before 60, she killed herself because that was during the famine and there was not enough things to eat. So she knew that she was going to die anyway. And I saw my uncle was dying from TB and people dying on the street. But how, as a normal person, can you believe that? If you see your relatives dying from starvation, but still believe that you have nothing to envy in the world, that's possible in North Korea somehow. We've heard a lot about the poverty and the famine that exists in North Korea. Mm. What was a good week like? You know, if you have uh, some oil to cook and if you eat meat a few times a, a year, we had some like plants in the mountain. We had rice and corns. And that was all about like what we ate, but that was a good life if we, we were able to eat them. You had a bit of an entrepreneurial streak, though, at the same time, <laughs> didn't you? you? You started a market stall? There was an orchard where uh, my father was arrested, he was in prison, and my mother also got interrogated. So at home, my sister and I was left, two of us. And in the orchard, there was a lot of uh, the fruit we just bribed the guard and we brought the lot of persimmon and we sold in the schoolyards or in the market. We didn't really make much money because on the way to the persimmon that orchard, we had to walk a lot. Mm. Then you wear off your shoes. <sighs> so even if you make some profit, like our shoes was more valuable than that. So eventually we had to stop. What do you think the impact of doing that was? Because I've read you say that it was the first time you started thinking for yourself. I think I learned a, a sense of control because until then, my dependence was on the government, when I learned like I could support myself somehow, I think that really gave me some sense of freedom and independence. But I couldn't like comprehend all these concepts because I never learned the words like freedom or liberty, individualism, you know. I think now I can understand them what I felt exactly, but it was very hard for me to put them in words. Is it in some way cathartic to sit down and and write out your story as you have done with your book to go around and talk about it? In in that process, Mm -hmm. are you going back and and understanding what happened to you as a a child? I think so, because um, until I wrote my book... I really didn't know what trauma was. Since I started writing the book, my story was v- like varied from my mother's memory or sister's. I think really writing the book was more about teaching myself what really happened, making a sense of my life. I really felt like when I was writing over North Korea, felt like being in North Korea. And especially when I was writing the escape part, when I finished a chapter, 
uh, when I escaped to South Korea, I literally felt like I just escaped. Tell me about the decision, the moment when you decided to cross the border from Korea into China. It's really different. I'm a very different human being when I became a different like, person. When I decided to escape, it was not even a decision. Like, imagine you're in an apartment where there's a fire and only choice for you is jump off from the window. If you're alive, that's your luck. If you die, that's your luck too. Luckily, I was in the living in the border area, and I could see the lights coming from China. As we can see from the satellite photos, North Korea have their you know Earth Day every day. <laughs> <laughs> they black it out. Right, There's the no day lights. is black, or thing is black, or that made me wonder how come China might ha- like has lights at night. And also, I heard this kind of uh, information from people, not quite accurate, but some people saying that in China, even the dogs eat rice. And I couldn't believe it. Like, how on earth yeah. <laughs> dogs eat rice? The things that we can't even eat as human beings in North Korea. Before we take the journey, I did want to ask you, you were getting in North Korea, you were getting pirated movies and, and things like that because you watched Titanic. Right. How are you reconciling what you saw in that world to what you were told about the West. I saw the, you know, blacked DVD and one of them was Titanic. And I couldn't believe it. Like, how can a person die for a love? Because in North Korea, love is such a shameful thing. And that was really, like, shocking to me. But later, I really felt some sense of humanity in that movie. That you can make, make a movie, it's just not all about propaganda. You can make a movie whatever you feel like. But at the same time, I didn't really comprehend that could be my life. That could be the world I can be in. When people talked about love in North Korea, they were talking about the leader. Yeah. Love, when we use that word, usually verbally, we don't use the word love. In the writing, we see a few times. It's about the love for the dear leader. But there was never a time I heard like my father was telling my mother he, he loved her. Or none of my parents told me ever they loved me. It's the most awkward word that I learned in South Korea. When I went there, the first word they told me was like, you should like express your love, say you love your mother, you say you like love your sister, all those things. It was so awkward. <laughs> Has it gotten less awkward over the years? It's been really less awkward, but yeah, I think my sister arrived in South Korea a lot later than I did and she still didn't tell me like she loves me. Let's go back to that moment where you are about to cross from North Korea into China. You can see the lights. You have all these questions. Did you have in your mind an an imagination of what might happen when you crossed over the border? What what were you expecting to see when you crossed over into China? I didn't have any expectation. Like, I didn't really think. You just did? Yeah. Thinking was a very hard thing for me to learn how to think or even just thinking itself. It's such a work for me. I have no choice. I'm going to starve to death if I stay in North Korea and I crossed. And whatever happens, that's their problem. I didn't even think a problem going to happen. <laughs> Just did it. So you crossed over the border with your mother and some terrible things happened to your mother. She was 
sexually assaulted in front of you mm-hmm. two times. What goes through your head in that moment? Or are you blocking it off and imagining that it, it isn't happening? I didn't really c- quite comprehend that time. I knew it was such a horrible thing, but I didn't have ever seen, like, heard of those things. In North Korea, we don't have sex education that I didn't even know what kiss was. It was just something really, really seen that I never saw, but I never want to see again. I, I think it's the only thing that I felt that time was like, uh, I just lost my faith in humanity. One of the things that you've been doing since you left North Korea is you've been using the attention that comes towards you to attract attention to the the story of human trafficking and you were trafficked as a human. I'm wondering how much money were you worth? I was worth over $200. And your mother was worth? Uh, I think 65 or $75. Why the difference in money? Because I was a virgin and she was not. It happened during the Beijing Olympics, didn't it? Right before. Right. And of course, during the Beijing Olympics or in the lead up to China went to a great deal of effort to, to crack down on human trafficking. But what is the difference between the public narrative that China put out about how they were cracking down on human trafficking and the reality of what you experienced? I don't even think they were just saying there's trafficking, human trafficking is happening. I think it's more likely they just say anything that is not fit in our society, we try to crack them down. It can be corruption, but they don't really like define what it is. No one wants to be human trafficked in China. No one wants to be, wants to be sold. If Ch- Chinese government were allowing us to just go to South Korea, then nothing would happen to us. We don't want to stay in China. So the only thing that China this is so remarkably evil about them is that the North Korean defectors have a country to accept them. They're brothers and sisters in the South. But China hand them back. Right. Geneva, the convention, they cannot send the political refugees back to their country. But China does. And why do you think China does that? I cannot speak for themselves. But obviously China doesn't want the regime to collapse. And they know the power of the factors. Imagine like me, there are 10,000 of them speaking out. And if there is like a, a million defectors escaped, the country cannot hold up the, the lie. Then people will like eventually learn, learn about the truth and they will demand the change. Right now, North Korea can control because they can control the outside information. And also they can control who's going out and who's coming in. So uh, Chinese government is helping them to maintain this dictatorship. So for $200, who were you sold to? Do you remember? I was sold to another human trafficker. There's a human trafficker who buys us in the border area. That's from North Korean side. They, they told us like they could send us to China for free. Didn't know why. Didn't question even why because it didn't matter anyway. Once we arrived in China, they sold us for like maybe, I'm not sure, 50 yuan in Chinese money. And then from there, they might find us what they call husband, which is our owner, or they can sell us another trafficker. At some point, you made a decision to cross the Gobi Desert, which is huge and freezing and incredibly dangerous thing to do. 
can you take me back to that moment and, and why you made that decision? What, why did it feel so urgent to make that incredibly dangerous trip? Because it's simple. Like, there was no, no way to survive in China. It's like if I don't make the decision, there's n- no other way I could be alive today. Even I might die, I just still had to try to live. So you go with your mother? Yep. And do you know where your sister is at this point? No, I had no idea because she left four days before us and then we had no idea where she was. In your mind, did you believe that she was alive? Did you believe that she was dead? I hoped she was alive, but we did hear this kind of news where she was raped and she killed herself and we refused to believe it. Why did you refuse to believe it? Because that's the only way for you to stay sane, I guess. Somehow our brain does that trick. It does make you believe that didn't really happen. And a lot of things, luckily my brain did to me that. How did you end up in a Mongolian jail? So from China, we didn't have passports, we didn't have anything. So only way to go to South Korea was through the third country. We didn't really have money to pay brokers. So we just had to manually walk across the Gobi Desert to Mongolia. And it was like a kind of refugee detention, interrogation slash like kind of camp. And after a period of time in that jail, you were allowed into South Korea? Yep. We flew to South Korea from Mongolia. Was there a moment when you realized that everything you had been told in North Korea about the South and the West and the rest of the world was was a lie? Was there a moment or was it a gradual realization that, oh, North Korea is not the greatest country on earth, that there there are Western democracies and they have money and they have food. I think I'm sure it's a, it was a graduation, right? But I didn't realize until that point, it was a, there was something like turning point. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure until lead up to that point, a lot of things had to happen to me. But I remember when I arrived in South Korea, people told me that Korean war didn't start by Americans. It started by the North. And that Kims are not gods, they are dictators. And the South Korea was not colonized by Americans. It's a free democracy country. All my life, I believe something else. And they told me it's a lie. But how do I guarantee that you are not lying to me again? What was the biggest sort of mental leap that you had to make? So I just kind of didn't really put things in mind. Just like... They might lie and I really completely lost my faith in every human being by then. I was really not trusting anyone. Somehow in my life, the book really played a big part, especially George Luckily, I did pick up a book called Animal Farm. I could see myself in that book. Right. It just, it was about my life, my grandmother's life. It's my people's life in that book. Have you ever found your faith back in humanity? Yeah. Probably. How, how long did it take? That was a gradual change. <laughs> that took a lot longer than I did, I thought. What did it take for you to trust men again? It's meeting great men. My father was a man and he was my hero. But it is like logically makes sense. But with the logic and your instinct to survive is very different. I try not to be occupied with my fear that I gained from my past experience. How old were you when you landed in South Korea? I was 15 by then. 
But you had a comprehension equivalent of an of an eight year old by South Korean standards, right? <laughs> and they say that North Korean defectors struggle uh, to to integrate because yeah. of education, because of reading, and a lot of people would hear that and give up. But you took it as a challenge, didn't you? Also, there was no choice for me. I mean, what could I do? I had no relatives, I had no friends. There's、uh, stereotypes about North Korean defectors. What are the stereotypes? Like one day I was in the university, I was taking this、uh, national security class, and so, like professor did not did not know that I was North Korean defector, so he was just really casually speaking. So one of the dangers in our society is a terror, but you know North Korean defectors are potential terrorists to our society. Has that ever happened? North Korean defectors becoming terrorists in South Korea? Not defectors, but spies. Okay, spies. They either came shoot the president's wife. They did came to maybe try to kill the president, and also in the society, people think we are going there stealing their jobs, and the competition is already high. Why do you accept, you know, defectors and bring the compet competition even higher for us to find a job? It's fascinating because it's literally the same anti-immigration argument that you find <laughs> everywhere in the world. It's like a possible terrorism, <laughs> right? And, possible terrorists take your、work. jobs. <laughs> They, they take our tax money,、oh, and、uh, so that's what I think. You know, people were like, "I pay for like well, our taxes are going to you, and like we don't really contribute to the society. We're the burden." I just had to lie to people that I was South Korean. You really committed to educating yourself, though, and, and reading and consuming as much information. Why did that matter so much to you? I guess I started with the books because no one wanted to play with me. Basically,、oh, right? No, that's terrible. God. <laughs> so, you know, like a whole society telling me like I was a failure before even I started, and like somehow books only telling me like I can do it in life. So naturally, I had to be friends with the books. <laughs> so it was not by really choice. What happened to your sister? A lot of things happened, and she was in China for seven years. Wow, a lot longer than I did. Yeah, what I went through was like a joke to her, but thankfully she's alive. She did came to South Korea without knowing that we were there. Now we are all reunited, but she chose not to talk about it, and as a lot of North Korean defectors choose not to talk about their past. Do you remember the moment you first saw her again after all those years? Yes, when I was in America, I heard that she came to South Korea, and then I flew, and we at the NSI, like、uh, the intelligence center, where they find out if they're like a spy or not. I saw her that she didn't grow any any taller or bigger than when she left me. You know, after seven years later. What do I really tell her? Like, how have you been? <laughs> Or like, how are you? I think we just cried for like thirty minutes, and that was our time up. So we had to be separated like, again. What did that feel like? You've finally seen her again after all of these years, and you know that you have very different stories、mm-hmm. and probably some common experiences that you could possibly help each other through in the long run. And then to be separated again after thirty minutes—how did that feel? It's a lot of different feelings, right? Uh, I found her. Started, she was doing the therapy. I knew that there's no end to it. If she continues to do that, she will always feel miserable. So if she continued to, to, to pity to, herself, to pity herself, right? Yeah,、okay. and right. Eventually, you really have to get a perspective and how lucky you are. You have to realize that. But sometimes they really struggle, 
And it was so sorry that how the world destroyed her. Like I couldn't find anything that I remembered about her. And she was afraid to connect with us again. And she was even sometimes resentful that she found us. She was even saying things like, I thought I would come here and then try. If it doesn't work, I would kill myself. But now I can't even kill myself. It was very diff difficult process to reconcile again for that time. But now is everything is great. How long did it take? It's still taking time. Yeah, and it's a journey, right? But, You're still working it out, right? No one's been, finished. Right. It's, it's been about three years, I think. She's in a lot better shape. One of the interesting things about you is that you found at a certain point that your story was incredibly powerful. I understand the first moment you realized that your story was powerful was when you were talking to a homeless man. Yeah, in America. Yeah, so what happened? <laughs> I was rescued by missionaries in China. And it's very irony, like when I was in North Korea, like I had to believe in Kim's. And when I was in South Korea, I mean, China, to be rescued. You had to believe in God. I have to believe in God. It's like, <laughs> why do I have to keep believing in something to be alive? Yeah. But I did believe. I don't know I was faking it or not. I thought I was a believer. But once I got rescued, life was became safe. I didn't. And I felt guilty about it. So I went to like Tyler, Texas in America. It's really out of nowhere. Hmm. I didn't go like New York, LA, San Francisco. You went to a tiny town in Texas. Like somewhere like in the middle of desert. And then we had like school and then we went to Atlanta, Georgia, and then we found a homeless shelter. It was really mind boggling to me because until that point, I did not know how to be empathized with the people. Like I did not know what compassion was. In North Korea, like I saw the dead bodies all, all the time. They didn't break my heart. I was like, oh, it's not pleasant, but it's not like hunting me down. Because to me, that was like a part of life always. And of course, when I went there, it was like, to me, it was really shocking. Like we tried to give them uh, some hand out the hot dogs and they were very picky about what they're eating too. <laughs> there was In like, the homeless shelter. And yeah. I was like, no, we don't want the hot dog. And then they were like having like even better clothes than I have. Some of them even have like personal laptops. I didn't even have the laptops. And I was like, these people are really spoiled. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I was like, really, like all I want in my life was having the ID. The whole country's against me. I never had a country that who, who would protect me. And that's all I wanted in life. Not even being born into a rich country or become better looking. Just have that the security and freedom. So I started to talk to those people. They shared with me. I didn't quite understand a lot, but businesses didn't work and they had some addiction problem and the, their family left them and it was really sad situation. And I shared my story with them and they told me that they want to try again in life. And so you, you told them the story of what happened to you and they were so completely dumbfounded by the response <laughs> that, they, that you literally inspired them to change their lives. But I was also by like humbled by them too, because I somehow thought, how come in this rich world, they, they can be a problem? How they can, misery can exist? But they told me that it, it is everywhere and it is all about how we just share it with each other. From that moment, I started to like learn how to empathize a bit more and learn what compassion was. But you also must have realized at that point that the 
the story you were telling was powerful. For you, it's a lived experience, but for others, it, it's astonishing. And that had an impact on people. Like, I think that they told me, like, that's really inspiring. And I did not know the word inspiring meant. Of course and not. <laughs> so it takes some time to realize, like, it's still, like, very humbling for me how people is, like, can connect with me because their life is very different. When I see their life here, it's, like, completely different universe. But somehow there's the humanity we share together and people know how to connect. At the age of 21, you gave a speech at the One Young World Youth Summit and it has been watched by literally millions of people. It's actually impossible to quantify the exact number because the video has been lifted and reposted so many times that it's in seven, eight, nine digits. Insane. When did you first realise that that speech that you gave (laughs) had such a huge impact? I didn't realise it. I I gave the speech for the first time, but embarrassingly I went there because they offered me a free ticket to Europe. <laughs> I was in, I was in Dublin, in, wasn't it? I know, yeah. I was in university in South Africa, I was studying, and they say, if you come, we can offer you a free ticket to Dublin. I thought Dublin was England somehow. I was like, <laughs> I don't say that in Dublin. They take it very seriously. <laughs> and then I, I really had no idea what there was. I just like a free ticket. Online, they said there's like, uh, you can apply for it to become a speaker. So I did interviewed by the people, actually. Mm. I had to become like other people, like other delegates who had to write it down, what kind of speech I'm going to give, and they have to do the interview me. And then somehow I got selected. You know, in life, also luck plays a lot of big part. What does, sorry? Luck. Luck, right. Yeah, yeah, I think I am very lucky. I think luck is more about meeting good people. I think that day, there were a lot of good people, and they made me feel comfortable too share the most private story that I could never thought I could share. Was there a moment when somebody must have told you or you must have known that it had been seen by millions of people? Because you'd given the speech on a stage in front of right. people, but then there's this additional audience on the internet. Right, right. Was there a moment when you realised that it had been seen by millions and millions of people? In the beginning, it was like seen, but it was only like a, like a few millions but somehow lately got like 80 millions, like 100 millions, like 60 millions in all, a lot of different websites. Like that number I can't even really comprehend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. So I was like, this is really weird. <laughs> it also still proves that how we were also starved to know what was happening to North Korean people. That there was not enough survivors who were there came out and spoke their story and told their story. Because all my life, I haunted by uh, shame. Uh, when I met that missionary in China, we had to tell him like what we had to do to survive. And he told me like I was a sinner. So this is the missionary in China. I thought like, oh, if I share this story, I guess I will have no future. Like I will be judged by people. So I had to guard that secret my whole life with everything that I had. A lot of defectors are still in living in that environment. So they've had to go from believing in the Kims to believing in Christian God as a as a transference to kind of right. process the, the world. But the problem also is that the 80 to 90% of North Korean defector women experience human trafficking. Mm. 
still in a lot of societies, we virtue like a virginity, purity of a woman. And these young girls, it's not easy for them to talk about it. We are still not very generous for like survivors to talk about their experiences. I think that's what I hope change, especially in Asia. In the West, I think we all like, we made a lot of progress. In Korea, somehow, even now, I feel like really ashamed of my story. Sometimes if I go back to Asia, like I don't want to talk about it. If you could say something to a girl that has just come out of what you had come out of, mm. she's been human trafficked and, and some of the horrible things that have happened with that, and she's made it out, what would you tell her so she can speak out? If they wish to speak up, but they are fearful of the public opinion, then they should not care about what others are saying. But I think as long as they, they know that it's not a shameful story, it's not, they should never feel shamed about it, then I'm fine with it. I think it's really hard because everyone's different. And without even telling the story, they can be perfectly happy. Have you ever had any contact from the North Korean government since you left? Oh, yeah, when I was trying to write the book. What happened? Uh, they were really deliberately trying to not to publish it. They had a massive smear campaign online. Talk about like how I was, uh, I, w- I was like, you know, trained by CIA and I was like puppet of the West. That I spread all the lies about DPRK and the West paid me to do this. And they used all my relatives, actually. You can see them online on YouTube. All my, like, relatives of my uncles, my cousins defy me. And they say, like, what is she talking about? We live in the socialist paradise. We don't have any bad things here. And she's just lying. How did that feel when you saw that pop up online? It was 80 years after 80 years I left. And in one way, it was very sad that was the... Only way that I could see them. And the other way, I was really happy to see them too. Because you knew they were alive. Yeah. I mean, other ways, like how they know they are like there. Yeah. They are okay. But now I'm expecting for them to use make another video, but they don't. But for me, that's the only way I can check their survivor. So I really hope they make another one. Have Western security agencies like the CIA and people like that, have they been in contact as well? No, somehow they don't. And so I do really try to be just careful on my own. In the West, there is and has been for some period of time a tendency to treat North Korea as an object of humour. The Kims, Kim Jong-il and his son, they lend themselves to comedy to a large degree. They're fat. They have funny haircuts. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that, that drive to make fun of North Korea as this funny rogue state? So there's only like two narratives, right? One is funny mm-hmm. and two is the crazy, dangerous nuclear weapon. First is like, I don't think I have any problem with making fun of a dictator it is a part of our freedom to do that, right? We can mock anyone we want. Another danger involved in that is that when something is just too funny, we don't grasp the gravity of seriousness. It's not funny to me. It's Holocaust was not funny. It renders your experience 
and the experience of other the North Korean people as being invisible. Right. So that's a real dilemma that we need to think about how we, as a media or public, how we make the narrative of this horrible issues. But that was just broke my heart. Like, I mean, people are being sold for like my mother purchased less than hundred dollars. In a fancy dinner, we can spend that money, but that's a human lives right now being traded and people literally living in the darkest place on earth. But also another serious issue right now is that like also US recently was asking North Korea, if you are willing to discuss about stopping your nuclear weapon development, we are happy to not talk about any human rights issues. So all these politicians, all their kids nuclear weapon. As long as North Korea is willing to cooperate with them, no one is going to talk about human rights. Even if we might stop North Korea to develop their nuclear weapons, the price is going to be us that we don't interfere any of their treatment like human beings. So that really scares me. Like this 21st century, when we care about animals' rights this much, when we have so many rights that, <laughs> that we care about, but somehow the people of North Korean people's rights isn't just never being even considered even once. Have you ever considered what you would say if you sat in front of the leader? Oh, I guess I mean, he was educated in Switzerland. He went to school in Switzerland. So he knows... He should know better. He, he knows what the democracy is. He, he knows how what the human dignity is, right? I don't need to lecture him that. But I do want to tell him that a lie cannot last forever. It will eventually fall and the people in North Korea will demand their rights and change. I think it will fall and it will change. It's all the matter of time. And if we help them, the change will come sooner. In your book, you say that you're... You're grateful that you were born in North Korea. Why were you grateful that you were born in North Korea? I learned a lot of things that I cannot find in this world. The sense of somehow purity that and the connection that human beings can have without interference of technology. It is something that undescribable to me that even though it was very difficult to survive there, there was love. We didn't use the word about it was love, but we, there was a love. And I learned love and everything from that place. No matter what, I am a North Korean and that's my home and that's my dream to be back. And I don't think I will ever forget the country. Yami, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for everything. All right, It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House. This season features guests from the Antidote program and it was hosted by me, Mark Fennell. There you go. Uh, it's produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hiraway. Music mix by Evan Williams. We were recorded by Josh Craig, mastered by Cullum Jensen-McKinnon and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey. And we will catch you on the next episode of It's a Long Story. Goodbye.